Part two of the Diary of a Superfluous Man. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Geeson. The Diary of a Superfluous Man by Ivan Turgenev. Translated by Constance Garnet. Part two. March twenty fourth. Sharp frost. On the very day of my arrival in the town of O, the official business above referred to brought me into contact with a certain Kirilla Matveitch Ozhogin, one of the chief functionaries of the district. But I became intimate, or as it is called, friends with him, a fortnight later. His house was in the principal street, and was distinguished from all the others by its size, its painted roof, and the lions on its gates lions of that species extraordinarily resembling unsuccessful dogs, whose natural home is Moscow. From those lions alone one might safely conclude that Ozhogin was a man of property, and so it was. He was the owner of four hundred peasants. He entertained in his house all the best society of the town of O, and had a reputation for hospitality. At his door was seen the mayor with his wide chestnut-coloured droshky and pear, an exceptionally bulky man, who seemed as though cut out of material that had been laid by for a long time. The other officials, too, used to drive to his receptions. The attorney, a yellowish, spiteful creature, the land surveyor, a wit of German extraction with a tartar face, the inspector of means of communication, a soft soul who sang songs, but a scandal-monger, a former marshal of the district, a gentleman with dyed hair, crumpled shirt-front and tight trousers, and that lofty expression of face so characteristic of men who have stood on trial. There used to come also two landowners, inseparable friends, both no longer young, and indeed a little the worse for wear, of whom the younger was continually crushing the elder, and putting him to silence with one and the same reproach. "'Don't you talk, Sergei Sergeitch. What have you to say? Why, you spell the word cork with two k's in it.' "'Yes, gentlemen,' he would go on, with all the fire of conviction, turning to the bystanders. "'Sergei Sergeitch spells it not cork, but cork.' and every one present would laugh, though probably not one of them was conspicuous for special accuracy in orthography, while the luckless Sergei Sergeitch held his tongue, and with a faint smile bowed his head. But I am forgetting that my hours are numbered, and am letting myself go into two minute descriptions. And so, without further beating about the bush, Ozhogin was married, he had a daughter, Elizaveta Kirillovna, and I fell in love with this daughter. Ozhogin himself was of commonplace person, neither good-looking nor bad-looking. His wife resembled an aged chicken, but their daughter had not taken after her parents. She was very pretty, and of a bright and gentle disposition. 
Her clear grey eyes looked out kindly and directly from under childishly arched brows. She was almost always smiling, and she laughed too pretty often. Her fresh voice had a very pleasant ring. She moved freely, rapidly, and blushed gaily. She did not dress very stylishly, only plain dresses suited her. I did not make friends quickly as a rule, and if I were at ease with any one from the first, which, however, scarcely ever occurred, it said I must own a great deal for my new acquaintance. I did not know at all how to behave with women, and in their presence I either scowled and put on a morose air, or grinned in the most idiotic way, and in my embarrassment turned my tongue round and round in my mouth. With Elizaveta Kirillovna, on the contrary, I felt at home from the first moment. It happened in this way. I called one day at Ozhogin's before dinner, asked, At home? Was told, The master's at home, dressing. Please to walk into the drawing-room. I went into the drawing-room. I beheld, standing at the window, with her back to me, a girl in a white gown, with a cage in her hands. I was, as my way was, somewhat taken aback. However, I showed no sign of it, but merely coughed for good manners. The girl turned round quickly, so quickly that her curls gave her a slap in the face, saw me, bowed, and with a smile showed me a little box half full of seeds. You don't mind? I, of course, as is the usual practice in such cases, first bowed my head, and at the same time rapidly crooked my knees and straightened them out again, as though someone had given me a blow from behind in the legs, a sure sign of good breeding and pleasant easy manners, and then smiled, raised my hand, and softly and carefully brandished it twice in the air. The girl at once turned away from me, took a little piece of board out of the cage, began vigorously scraping it with a knife, and suddenly, without changing her attitude, uttered the following words. "'This is Papa's parrot. Are you fond of parrots?' "'I prefer siskins,' I answered, not without some effort. "'I like siskins, too, but look at him. Isn't he pretty? Look, he's not afraid.' What surprised me was that I was not afraid. "'Come closer. His name's Popka.' I went up and bent down. Isn't he really sweet? She turned her face to me, but we were standing so close together that she had to throw her head back to get a look at me with her clear eyes. I gazed at her. Her rosy young face was smiling all over in such a friendly way that I smiled too, and almost laughed aloud with delight. The door opened. Mr. Ozhogin came in. I promptly went up to him, and began talking to him very unconstrainedly. I don't know how it was, but I stayed to dinner, and spent the whole evening with them, and next day the Ozhogin's footman, an elongated, dull-eyed person, smiled upon me as a friend of the family when he helped me off with my overcoat. To find a haven of refuge, to build oneself even a temporary nest, to feel the comfort of daily intercourse and habits, 
was a happiness I, a superfluous man with no family associations, had never before experienced. If anything about me had had any resemblance to a flower, and if the comparison were not so hackneyed, I would venture to say that my soul blossomed from that day. Everything within me and about me was suddenly transformed. My whole life was lighted up by love, the whole of it down to the paltriest details, like a dark deserted room when a light has been brought into it. I went to bed and got up, dressed, ate my breakfast and smoked my pipe, differently from before. I positively skipped along as I walked, as though wings were suddenly sprouting from my shoulders. I was not for an instant, I remember, in uncertainty with regard to the feeling Elizaveta Kirillovna inspired in me. I fell passionately in love with her from the first day and from the first day I knew I was in love. During the course of three weeks I saw her every day. Those three weeks were the happiest time in my life. But the recollection of them is painful to me. I can't think of them alone. I cannot help dwelling on what followed after them. And the intensest bitterness slowly takes possession of my softened heart. When a man is very happy, his brain, as is well known, is not very active. A calm and delicious sensation, the sensation of satisfaction, pervades his whole being. He is swallowed up by it. The consciousness of personal life vanishes in him. He is in beatitude, as badly educated poets say. But when at last this enchantment is over, a man is sometimes vexed and sorry that in the midst of bliss he observed himself so little, that he did not, by reflection, by recollection, redouble and prolong his feelings, as though the beatific man had time and it were worth his while to reflect on his sensations. The happy man is what the fly is in the sunshine. And so it is that when I recall those three weeks, it is almost impossible for me to retain in my mind any exact and definite impression, all the more so as during that time nothing very remarkable took place between us. Those twenty days are present to my imagination as something warm and young and fragrant, a sort of streak of light in my dingy greyish life. My memory becomes all at once remorselessly clear and trustworthy, only from the instant when, to use the phrase of badly educated writers, the blows of destiny began to fall upon me. Yes, those three weeks. Not but what they have left some images in my mind, sometimes when it happens to me to brood a long while on that time. Some memories suddenly float up out of the darkness of the past, like stars which suddenly come out against the evening sky to meet the eyes straining to catch sight of them. One country walk in a wood has remained particularly distinct in my memory. There were four of us, old Madame Ozhogin, Lisa, I, and a certain Bismyonkov a petty official of the town of O, a light-haired, good-natured, and harmless person. I shall have more to say of him later. 
Mr. Ozhogin had stayed at home. He had a headache from sleeping too long. The day was exquisite, warm and soft. I must observe that pleasure gardens and picnic parties are not to the taste of the average Russian. In district towns, in the so-called public gardens, you never meet a living soul at any time of the year. At the most, some old woman sits sighing and moaning on a green garden seat, broiling in the sun, not far from a sickly tree, and that only if there is no greasy little bench in the gateway near. But if there happens to be a scraggy birchwood in the neighbourhood of the town, tradespeople and even officials gladly make excursions thither on Sundays and holidays, with samovars, pies and melons, set all this abundance on the dusty grass close by the road, sit round and eat and drink tea in the sweat of their brows till evening. Just such a wood there was at that time a mile and a half from the town of O. We repaired there after dinner, duly drank our fill of tea, and then all four began to wander about the wood. Bismyonkov walked with Madame Ozhogin on his arm, I with Lisa on mine. The day was already drawing to evening. I was at that time in the very fire of first love. Not more than a fortnight had passed since our first meeting. In that condition of passionate and concentrated adoration, when your whole soul innocently and unconsciously follows every movement of the beloved being, when you can never have enough of her presence, listen enough to her voice, when you smile with the look of a child convalescent after sickness, and a man of the smallest experience cannot fail at the first glance to recognise a hundred yards off what is the matter with you. Till that day I had never happened to have Lisa on my arm, we walked side by side, stepping slowly over the green grass. A light breeze, as it were, flitted about us between the green stems of the birches, every now and then flapping the ribbon of her hat into my face. I incessantly followed her eyes, until at last she turned gaily to me and we both smiled at each other. The birds were chirping approvingly above us, the blue sky peeped caressingly at us through the delicate foliage. My head was going round with excess of bliss. I hastened to remark Lisa was not a bit in love with me. She liked me. She was never shy with anyone. But it was not reserved for me to trouble her childlike peace of mind. She walked arm in arm with me as she would with a brother. She was seventeen then. And meanwhile, that very evening, before my eyes, there began that soft inward ferment which precedes the metamorphosis of the child into the woman. I was witness of that transformation of the whole being, that guileless bewilderment, that agitated dreaminess. I was the first to detect the sudden softness of the glance, the sudden ring in the voice. And, oh, fool! Oh, superfluous man! For a whole week I had the face to imagine that I, I, was the cause of this transformation. This was how it happened. We walked rather a long while, till evening, and talked little. I was silent, like all inexperienced lovers, 
and she probably had nothing to say to me. But she seemed to be pondering over something, and shook her head in a peculiar way, as she pensively nibbled a leaf she had picked. Sometimes she started walking ahead, so resolutely, then all at once stopped, waited for me, and looked round with lifted eyebrows and a vague smile. On the previous evening we had read together, The Prisoner of the Caucasus. With what eagerness she had listened to me, her face propped in both hands, and her bosom pressed against the table. I began to speak of our yesterday's reading. She flushed, asked me whether I had given the parrot any hemp-seed before starting, began humming some little song aloud, and all at once was silent again. The copse ended on one side in a rather high and abrupt precipice. Below coursed a winding stream, and beyond it, over an immense expanse, stretched the boundless prairies, rising like waves, spreading wide like a tablecloth, and broken here and there by ravines. Lisa and I were the first to come out at the edge of the wood. Bismyonkov and the elder lady were behind. We came out, stood still, and involuntarily we both half shut our eyes. Directly facing us, across a lurid mist, the vast purple sun was setting. Half the sky was flushed and glowing. Red rays fell slanting on the meadows, casting a crimson reflection, even on the side of the ravines in shadow, lying in gleams of fire on the stream, where it was not hidden under the overhanging bushes and as it were leaning on the bosom of the precipice and the copse. We stood bathed in the blazing brilliance. I am not capable of describing all the impassioned solemnity of this scene. They say that by a blind man the colour red is imagined as the sound of a trumpet. I don't know how far this comparison is correct, but really there was something of a challenge in this glowing gold of the evening air in the crimson flush on sky and earth. I uttered a cry of rapture, and at once turned to Lisa. She was looking straight at the sun. I remember the sunset glow was reflected in little points of fire in her eyes. She was overwhelmed, deeply moved. She made no response to my exclamation. For a long while she stood, not stirring, with drooping head. I held out my hand to her. She turned away from me and suddenly burst into tears. I looked at her with secret, almost delighted amazement. The voice of Bismyonkov was heard a couple of yards off. Liza quickly wiped her tears and looked with a faltering smile at me. The elder lady came out of the copse, leaning on the arm of her flaxen-headed escort. They, in their turn, admired the view. The old lady addressed some question to Lisa, and I could not help shuddering, I remember, when her daughter's broken voice, like cracked glass, sounded in reply. Meanwhile the sun had set, and the afterglow began to fade. We turned back. Again I took Lisa's arm in mine. It was still light in the wood, and I could clearly distinguish her features. She was confused, and did not raise her eyes. The flush that overspread her face did not vanish, 
It was as though she were still standing in the rays of the setting sun. Her hand scarcely touched my arm. For a long while I could not frame a sentence. My heart was beating so violently. Through the trees there was a glimpse of the carriage in the distance. The coachman was coming at a walking pace to meet us over the soft sand of the road. Lizaveta Kirillovna, I brought out at last. What did you cry for? I don't know, she answered after a short silence. She looked at me with her soft eyes still wet with tears. Her look struck me as changed, and she was silent again. You are very fond, I see, of nature, I pursued. That was not at all what I meant to say, and the last words my tongue scarcely faltered out to the end. She shook her head. I could not utter another word. I was waiting for something, not an avowal. How was that possible? I waited for a confiding glance, a question. But Lisa looked at the ground and kept silent. I repeated once more in a whisper. Why was it? And received no reply. She had grown, I saw that, ill at ease, almost ashamed. A quarter of an hour later we were sitting in the carriage driving to the town. The horses flew along at an even trot. We were rapidly whirled along through the darkening damp air. I suddenly began talking, more than once addressing first Miss Mionkov and then Madame Ozhogin. I did not look at Lisa, but I could see that from her corner in the carriage her eyes did not once rest on me. At home she roused herself, but would not read with me, and soon went off to bed. A turning point, that turning point I have spoken of, had been reached by her. She had ceased to be a little girl. She too had begun, like me, to wait for something. She had not long to wait. But that night I went home to my lodgings in a state of perfect ecstasy. The vague half-presentiment, half-suspicion, which had been arising within me, had vanished. The sudden constraint in Lisa's manner towards me I ascribed to maidenly bashfulness, timidity. Hadn't I read a thousand times over in many books that the first appearance of love always agitates and alarms a young girl? I felt supremely happy and was already making all sorts of plans in my head. If someone had whispered in my ear then, "'You're raving, my dear chap. That's not a bit what's in store for you. What's in store for you is to die all alone, in a wretched little cottage, amid the insufferable grumbling of an old hag who will await your death with impatience to sell your boots for a few coppers.' Yes, one can't help saying with the Russian philosopher, how's one to know what one doesn't know? Enough for today. End of part two. Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey.